0: Good morning everyone, great to see you all, great to worship with you. Hey, uh, we're going to begin this morning, we're going to pray, and then we're going to read our scripture passage, and by the way, uh, if you have a Bible with you, highly encourage you open up to Romans chapter 9, we're going to be really digging into these uh, verses, we're going to be looking at verses 14 through 18 this morning, so open that up. I also will not be offended, and your prayer still counts. If you go out into the lobby and grab a Bible if you don't have one, we give them away for free there. So please, during the prayer, feel free to go and grab one if you don't have one. Have a Bible open in front of you. Let's pray together, though. Heavenly Father, you are the almighty, righteous, holy, just, gracious, merciful, and sovereign God. And God, we pray that as we stand before you, we are really small. And we realize that everything that we have is a gift from you, that everything that we are comes from you. And we pray, God, now that as we open your word, this word that you've given us to know who you are, to know your character, to know what you've done in your son, Jesus Christ, that God, you would send forth your spirit to open our eyes, we know that you're Word, your scripture has been inspired throughout all the ages through various authors and you say that it's breathed out by you and it's profitable. It's profitable for teaching, for correction, for reproof and for training in righteousness so that the person who follows God might live a life of righteousness. And God, we pray now we need your help to understand it. We need your help to make it clear to us. We need your help to believe it even. And we know that we can only Do that if you act first and you grant us your Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit, would you do that now? We ask this all in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Amen. So Romans 9, verses 14 through 18, we're going to read the passage. And just so you know, we're jumping into this. And last week we looked at Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. And there we were talking about this doctrine of predestination. So if you weren't with us last week, just to give you some clarity, Paul's about to ask a question that relates to election, that relates to predestination. And we're going to obviously unpack again what predestination means, but just so you have a little bit of your bearings and a little bit of context before you read this. So beginning in verse 14, let's read together. This is the word of God. What shall we say then? He has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills is the word of God. So let me just summarize last week. Like I said, we looked at verses one through 13 in Romans chapter nine, and we really took some time to expound and really unpack this doctrine that Paul was teaching, which is the doctrine of predestination or the doctrine of election. And we said last week that this Election has to do with a choice, a choice of God. Just like we have elections now in the United States, where once every couple of years we go into a voting booth and we get to choose who it is we want to be our representative, either at the state level, local level, national level, but we have this choice. And election or predestination in the Bible gets at that same idea, this idea of a choice, and it's a choice of God. Around who it is who he's going to save before the foundation of the world, before any of us ever existed. And so we defined predestination last week, and here's that definition that we came up with. We said predestination is the biblical teaching that God sovereignly chooses our eternal destiny, heaven or hell, before the foundation of the world. So let's read that again. Predestination election is the biblical teaching that God sovereignly chooses our eternal destiny, heaven or hell, before the foundation of the world. And now, for many of you, maybe this is the first week that you're ever going to even hear about predestination. Maybe you've never heard about it before, or maybe you were here with us last week and that was the first time that you heard about it. I remember the first time I heard about it I was actually in college and I heard one of my friends speaking about it and I just overheard that conversation and that got my wheels turning I had just become a Christian at that point so I went home and I started searching predestination election and I'm looking on Google and as you do if you start studying these things I came to this description of John Calvin John Calvin was a theologian he lived in the middle uh, or sorry in the 17th and 16th centuries And as I was reading about John Calvin and Calvinism, you know, the light started going dark in my room and Phantom of the Opera was playing in the background somewhere and it got really grim. And that's usually how we think of these doctrines, predestination. And here's what I want to point out that, and this is crucial, by the way, you have to to hold on to this. It is not important Ultimately, whether we like Calvin or Calvinism or anyone else for that matter who teaches predestination, at the end of the day, what matters is whether or not Scripture teaches predestination and election. That's what matters at the end of the day. And Paul, we saw last week when he was explaining predestination and election, what he did in order to defend what he was teaching to unpack this for us, what he did was he explained it by using the Bible. He explained it by using the Old Testament. And what we saw in all those passages that we looked at was that God always has sovereignly chosen people by his free grace and passed over others. And we saw that in his discussion about Abraham. Remember Abraham, he was this man who was chosen by God out of Babylon, out of the land of the Chaldeans, the land of Ur, And we're told that Abraham had two children, two sons. Ishmael, who was the oldest. He was born of Hagar, who was an Egyptian servant. And then there was Isaac. He was the youngest brother. And he was born by Sarah. And remember, God had given all these promises to Abraham. Promises of life in a land and promises of eternal life and spiritual blessing and all these great things. And Paul says of Abraham... Not all, children of, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but he says, But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, About this time next year I will return and Sarah will have a son. So you see what he's saying about Abraham. Abraham had all these promises, but the promises were not given to Ishmael. God passed over Ishmael. Instead, the promise ran through Isaac. God chose Isaac to be a child of God. And then, to kind of add to this, Paul mentions Isaac's children. Isaac had twins. He had twin boys, two sons from his wife, Rebekah. Esau was the oldest, Jacob was the youngest. And there, we're told, though they were not yet born... Speaking about the twins, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, that's God. She was told, Esau will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. So here again. We see God chooses Jacob and he didn't choose Esau. He passed by Esau. Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated. And Paul, just like any good author does, right? And you know this, if you've written a paper for college or you've written any sort of thing that you want to be very clear in what you're writing, what he mentions at the beginning, he also brings up and sums up and concludes at the end. So at the end of this discussion on predestination, Paul brings it back up again in Romans chapter 11. There he's talking about Elijah. Elijah was this great prophet in Israel. And Elijah did all these miraculous deeds. And then after all these miraculous deeds, he's in despair. And he's saying, God, I'm the only one that follows you in all of Israel. How do you expect me to live? But what's God's reply to him? God says, I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant, right, of chosen few. That's what remnant means. There's a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. So what do all these examples drawn directly from the Bible, mind you, from the Old Testament, what do they demonstrate? What's Paul using them for? Well, he's trying to demonstrate that God is an electing, predestining God, that God sovereignly chooses our eternity before the foundation of the world, and he's always done so, even all the way back in the Old Testament. And write these doctrines, this this teaching, it, it surfaces a lot of questions. I'm sure many of you have plenty of questions around this teaching, about this teaching of Paul. But the first question that always comes up, and it's always the first question that comes up, and it's the first question that comes up when Paul mentions it, is this. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? In other words, that's unfair. God, that's unfair for you to choose Isaac over Ishmael, to choose Jacob over Esau. That sounds unfair. In fact, that sounds unjust. That sounds like there's injustice on your part, God. And that's the question that comes up, and it's a question a lot of us have. In fact, uh, it's a beautiful October day. There's very few beautiful days in Nashville. Usually it's pretty hot and humid, but we lived in Nashville for a time beautiful October day. We just went to church with these friends that we were hosting and they came over to our house. We're having lunch and, you know, like I do with everybody that comes and our guests in our house, I asked them what they thought about the doctrine of predestination and election. (laughs) And I'm just kidding. I didn't really do that. Actually, it came up very organically, I promise, with just some slight nudging on my part in that direction. But We were sharing with what we believe about about these passages, and we were telling them what we believe about predestination, is specifically from Romans 9, and we said, hey, we think it's like this. You know, there are a mass of human sinners. We're all sinners. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. That's what the Bible says. And out of this mass of fallen creatures, God has graciously chosen some. And those whom He's chosen, by His grace, He gives faith to believe in His Son Jesus, who accomplished their salvation. So that's what we shared. God chooses us first by grace, and then we choose him by faith. And their first knee-jerk, gut, visceral reaction was the same reaction that we all have, right? And I remember specifically they said, well, that's not fair. It's not fair. And they went as far, actually, even to say that there's no way that's in the Bible. There's, There's no way Paul is teaching that. There's no way that the Bible says God does something like that. And many of us do that as well. We say, no, there's got to be a different interpretation. It can't, it can't be saying that. But I want you to look verse 14 again. What's the first question Paul brings up, the first objection Paul brings up? Isn't that the exact same objection that we bring up? And I point that out to say... And what I want you to see is this, the very fact that Paul acknowledges this objection shows, in fact, that he is teaching predestination. He's he's teaching election. If he wasn't teaching election, if he wasn't teaching predestination, then this objection would never come up because nobody would ever bring the accusation against God that he's unfair. So what Paul does is he surfaces this objection because he knows that's what's on our hearts. That's the first thing that's going to come to our mind when we hear about this teaching, that God chose Jacob and passed over Esau. So this morning, here's what I want to do. I want to look at Paul's answer to this question that we all have. Is there injustice on God's part? And I'll restate it this way. It is this, in election, is God unjust? That's our question this morning. Is election unfair? Is it unjust for God to choose who will be saved? And Paul's immediate answer, we saw that in verse 14. He says, hey, emphatically, by no means. No, God's not unjust. But then what he does is he offers two responses to us. Response number one is in verses 15 and 16. Response number two is in verses 17 through 18. And both responses are meant to prove that God in election and predestination is not unjust. So let's look at response number one. You can look first at verse 14. Paul's response, again, notice what he does, is he quotes the Old Testament. He draws out this quote from the Old Testament in Exodus where God is speaking to Moses. But beginning in verse 14, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he, that's God, this is the book of Exodus, quotation from Exodus. For he, God, says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now, what Paul is doing in this Exodus passage here is he's actually trying to stress two points. He's trying to stress two points. First point he's trying to stress is that everybody deserves, everybody is owed God's judgment and punishment even Israel. Everybody deserves and is owed God's judgment and punishment, even Israel. And if you're familiar with the Exodus story, you actually realize this pretty quickly. Israel, in that story, is enslaved in Egypt. And they're enslaved for about 400 years. And Pharaoh, who's the king of Egypt during that time, Has this plan because he sees that Israel is growing so numerous that he's afraid they're going to grow so numerous, they're going to team up with a foreign nation and they're going to overtake his kingdom. So he hatches this plan where he kind of recruits all of Israel's midwives. And he says, every time that an Israelite woman has a child, if it's a male, you kill it. If it's a female, you let it live. Well, Israelite women, they fear God, so they decide we're not going to do that, we're not going to go forward with that. So Pharaoh takes matters into his own hands and he recruits his soldiers to go and kill and slaughter every male in Israel that's less than two years old. And so God's people, they cry out for deliverance, they ask God to send them a deliverer and they do. God raises up Moses and God, speaking to Moses, says, say to the people of Israel... I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. I will and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And that's exactly what God does. God in this miraculous deliverance brings God's people out Delivers them from slavery and oppression. And the next thing he does is he brings them to Mount Sinai. This great mountain in the wilderness where he gives them his Ten Commandments. The people hear God's Ten Commandments. And after hearing the commandments, they swear this solemn oath to God. They swear this solemn oath to God. We're told Moses takes the Ten Commandments and he does this. He took the book of the covenant, that's the Ten Commandments. And he read it in the hearing of the people. And all the people said... All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. Famous last words of a fool right there. And Moses, he, we're told he does this. They had just prepared a sacrifice, and there's blood. So Moses takes uh, a, a branch of hyssop, and, and he, he, he puts it in the blood. And we're told that Moses took the blood, and he threw it on the people. And he said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has just made with you in accordance with all these words. In other words, what Moses was saying is, if you don't keep the words of your solemn oath, all of this we will do, then you will become like this sacrifice. And you'll have no one to blame but yourself. So what happens next? Well, Moses, he actually ascends Mount Sinai and he goes to receive two tablets That God, by his own finger, has written the Ten Commandments out on. And as he's up there, as he goes up onto Mount Sinai, he's a little bit delayed. He's been up there for 40 days and 40 nights. And the people are getting a little bit anxious. So they decide, hey, Aaron, Moses' brother, why don't you make us a new God? And so they take off their earrings. They take off their watches, Rolex. And uh, they throw it into the fire. Out comes this golden calf, this massive golden calf. And what does Aaron say? These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Devastating. And it's devastating not only because they have given credit for their deliverance to a piece of metal, but it's also devastating because they have broken the first two commandments. The first two. No other gods before me, no idols. All this we will do, do, and they can't keep the first two. Now, let me ask you, what does this story illustrate? If God gave Israel what was fair, if God gave Israel what they deserved, and if God gave Israel what was just, what would they receive? They'd receive judgment. They'd receive punishment. Punishment for breaking the law of God who had just miraculously delivered them from slavery. See, if God gave Israel what was fair, what was just, what they deserved, then they would all be condemned. And that's why Paul quotes God Speaking to Moses in verse 15, for God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and all have compassion on whom I have compassion. Why? Because nobody deserves it. Nobody can look at God and say, God, you owe me mercy. Instead, everybody is owed God's justice and his judgment. God is a perfectly righteous and good, just, judge who is fully within his right to punish even Israel. And here's the reality. If God is righteously just to punish Israel, what does that say about us? We all deserve God's punishment. I've shared this quote before. I love it. It's by Victor Hugo. He was the guy who wrote Les Miserables. He was like the prolific French novelist, wrote books that are bigger than your hand, He said, quote, all of our desires when examined contain something too shameful to reveal. See, in our hearts, we know, right, our desires, the things within us, if anybody was to get a look at what was inside of us, the true state of our hearts, it would be too shameful to reveal. I don't know if this is true, uh, but it's a story I've heard. The author of Sherlock Holmes, his name was Arthur Conan Doyle, He one time wrote six of his really respectable friends. He wrote them a letter, and all that the letter said was, Flee, for all has been revealed. That's all he he wrote, and he sent it to six of his respectable friends, and as the story goes, three of them took off in the middle of the night. They fled the country. (laughs) And here's the thing. There are things about me, my past, even my present, that if you saw them, I guarantee I would be in Mexico faster than you can say Mexico. And I know the same thing's true about you. Why? Because last week we saw Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. Remember, this was right before the flood. Right before God was about to bring cataclysmic judgment over all of the world by sending a worldwide flood. God's looking out on the heart of every human person and he says... The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. And now I was even asked, I've been asked this question before, well, what about Noah? Noah was righteous, Noah followed God. Surely God thought that Noah had some purity in his heart. Well, it's interesting. Flip the page over just one more page and you realize after the flood, Noah comes out, it's just Noah and his family. And they make this sacrifice, this offering to God, and we're told that the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma. The Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Now let me ask you, who are the only people left on the earth? Noah. And whose heart is evil continually from their youth? Noah. So it doesn't matter if it's Noah or King David, King Solomon, King Josiah, Adam, Eve, Cain, Abel, you, me, or the next guy, Mother Teresa, all deserve God's punishment, all deserve God's eternal condemnation in hell for our sins. And Paul uses this, this verse from Exodus to stress this reality everybody deserves and is owed God's judgment and punishment. Israel in the Old Testament and us now. And the point is this, when God passes over Esau, when God passes over Ishmael, when God passes over anyone, God is not being unjust. God is not being unfair to them. No, he is being exceedingly fair. Do you want justice? God will give justice to whom justice is owed. He will pour out his judgment. But there's a question that is kind of a layer deeper than this. And I realize that. And the question is, well, why then? Why then doesn't God save all? Why doesn't God choose to save all? If God's truly merciful, if God truly loves, then why doesn't he show mercy to everyone? And that is a sincere question. And personally, I actually wrestle with that question. I agonize over that question because I have friends, I have family that do not believe in Jesus. So I agonize over that. I think Paul agonized over that as well. At the beginning of Romans chapter nine, you just have to go back and read it. Beginning in, I believe, verses one through three, Paul is just talking about how it's his sincere heart desire that the people of Israel would be saved, but they're not believing in Jesus. So he's wrestling with this. But here's what I want you to see here. When we think God is unfair because he doesn't give mercy to everyone, we are assuming that because God gives mercy to some, then he owes mercy to all. We think because, well, God gave mercy to Jacob, therefore he owes mercy to Esau. And that's actually the second point that Paul's trying to stress with this quotation from uh, Exodus here, when he says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. He's trying to stress, just because God shows mercy to some doesn't mean he owes it to all. I, uh, in college, uh, received this scholarship, and it was, an indiscriminate, it was an indiscriminate scholarship. All you had to do was be a student at Hastings College in order to potentially receive it. It was called the Rob Babcock Scholarship. And it was a substantial amount of money. It was something like $3,000 or $4,000 a semester. So it was, it was a good chunk of money. And the, the point being here that the Babcock family was not in any way unmerciful just because they gave the scholarship to me and not the other 1,400 students at Hastings College. right? Just because they showed mercy and grace and, and favor to me Doesn't mean they were unjust to not give it to everybody else. No, it was a voluntary gift that they could give out as they saw fit. And the same thing holds true with God. God says, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. My mercy is a voluntary gift. I'm free to give it as I please. Nobody can come to me and say, God, you owe me mercy. I'm not obliged to that. Just because I give mercy to some doesn't mean I owe mercy to all. And here's kind of the final question. You might be convinced here. You might say, well, okay, granted, just because God shows mercy to some doesn't mean it's owed to all. But why does God choose some people and not others? Why Why Jacob? Why Isaac and not Esau? And why not Ishmael? Why me and not my friend? And we have to be honest here, we don't know. We do not know why God chooses some and he doesn't choose others. But we do know, this. Yes, we do know. We do know that God's choice of some is not based on anything in the person or anything that that person does. See that in Romans 9. Paul actually concludes verse 16. He says, So then... Because God has mercy on whom he'll have mercy, so then it does not depend on human will or exertion. It doesn't depend on someone's free will choice of Jesus. It doesn't depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. See, meaning God's choice, his predestination is based solely on his mercy as a free gift. It has everything to do with God's mercy, nothing to do with us. Israel was no more deserving than Egypt. The Jews were no more deserving of Gentiles. Religious people, I'm talking to you, religious people, religious people are no more deserving than irreligious people. Christians, You are no more deserving than atheists, agnostics, Jews, Sikhs, Buddhists, Muslims. We are no more deserving of God's mercy than anyone else. That we know for sure because it has everything to do with God and nothing to do with us. Nothing whatsoever. But there's a second thing that we know for sure. And we know that the reason God leaves it up to his mercy and not our will is so that we don't try to take credit for it. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not the result of works. Why? So that no one should boast. So that nobody can say, I did it, I chose God, I chose Jesus, I'm saved. It was me. Yeah, God, you went 99% of the way, but I went 1%. A lot of Images of salvation. When people are talking about salvation, they make it seem that way, right? They, they picture salvation. Salvation's like we're drowning in the ocean and we're about to go under and, and die. We're about to go to the bottom of the, of the deep. And the Coast Guard comes and they throw the life preserver, and the life preserver's right there. They've gone 99% of the way, but what do you have to do? You have to reach out and grab it. But if you know what Paul says before this, he says, No, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So it's not that we're drowning human beings. No, we're dead on the bottom of the ocean. We need the Coast Guard to dive in, go to the bottom. They have to bring us back up. They have to resuscitate us back to life. They have to use the things to bring us back to life. And we have to be resurrected, born again. Paul says God did this all 100%, all by God, so that we would not be able to take one iota of glory away from God and take any credit and boast before the presence of God for our salvation. Because God knows if he doesn't receive all the credit, then we're going to do it. We're going to take some credit. Just think about this personally, okay? If you say you're a follower of Jesus in here this morning, I want to ask you, I'm sure you know other people who do not follow Jesus. Why is it that they do not believe in Jesus and you do? Is it because you're more righteous than them? You would say, no, 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 no. It's not because I'm more righteous than them. Is it because you're more intelligent than them? Again, you say, no, no Wait, No, you know what it is? I believe in Jesus because I saw my desperate need for Jesus. Well, again, I'd ask you, let me press the question. Did you see your desperate need for him because you're more intelligent than the people who don't follow Jesus? Because you're more righteous, because you're more spiritual, because you're more humble, because you're more receptive to the truth? What is it? See, don't you see, at the end of the day, if we don't acknowledge that salvation is free 100% the gift of God, then we will take credit for it. We will have something to boast about it, even if it's 1%, and we will receive some glory. We can say we contributed in some way to our salvation. Paul says, nope, that's not how it works. It's not how it works. It has everything to do with God 100% and nothing to do with us. Zero percent. If you could go lower than zero percent, you might want to do that. God's mercy is completely and unconditionally free. That's Paul's first response. Now, before we move on to Paul's second response, I I do want to dig one layer deep here because I actually think at the core of this objection that we have when we say, God, that's not fair. I actually think at the core of that objection is actually an accusation against God. And I think that accusation says, God, you are not being merciful enough. God, you're you're just not being gracious enough. You you could save more people, but you're just not doing it. And to that, friends, I, I have to issue two gentle corrections, okay? We need to be corrected because we're shocked at the wrong thing. We're shocked because God doesn't save everyone. But friends, we need to be shocked that God saves anyone. You know, at the end of, like, presidential terms, they pardon people for for no other reason than than they want to. Those people are guilty, many of them. And it shocks me that they would pardon anyone. It should shock us the same, that God would be pardoning, being merciful, being gracious to anyone. You know, we often presume, of course God's going to be merciful. He's a merciful God. Or, you know, of course God's going to be gracious because he's loving friends. We forget that God's mercy is not something that he is obliged to give. We should be shocked that he saves anyone. But we also need to be corrected because when God elects, right, when God chooses anyone, he chooses them into his son Jesus. He chooses them into his cross, his perfect life, his resurrection, He chooses not that we'll just go straight to heaven. No, but that we would embrace his son, Jesus, whom he sent to accomplish our salvation. So what that means is in order for God to save his elect people, God had to give the thing that was most precious to him, his only begotten son. He had to give away his only begotten son In order that he might be crucified, died, and buried, in order that our sin might go on him. It was the most generous gift he could possibly have given. So, just as a way of gentle correction here, friends, before we accuse God of not being merciful enough, let's remember what he did give. So, Paul's first response is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Everyone deserves and everyone is owed God's judgment. And just because God gives mercy to some does not mean God owes mercy to all. God says, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. That leads to Paul's second response, verses 17 and 18. And Paul drives this response even further. And he does so by telling us about Pharaoh. Now, just forewarning here. If that first bit was a hard bit to swallow, response number one, then response number two is like, the flavorless antibiotics that they give your kids. This one's very hard to swallow, so just forewarning. Now, remember our question. The question is, in election, is God unjust? Paul says, by no means. And using this example of Pharaoh, he says, in fact, God intentionally didn't save Pharaoh. He intentionally didn't save Pharaoh in order to use him for his own plan and for his own glory. So look again at verse 17. Verse 17. Talking about Pharaoh, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you. See so what Paul is saying is that the very reason that God made Pharaoh, the very reason God made Pharaoh the king of Egypt. That Pharaoh was in the Exodus story, that Pharaoh existed, that he was raised up with so that God might show his power in him, that God might show that he is a powerful and just God who will indeed punish sin. And that's what God did. In order to demonstrate his powerful justice, God used Pharaoh, Pharaoh's rebellion, Pharaoh's obstinance, Pharaoh's sin, and he visited 10 plagues on Egypt to show he is just, So he turned the water of the Nile River into blood. He brought swarms of frogs across the land. He sent gnats that covered every person and animal. He inflicted livestock with pestilence. He brought boils, hail, locusts, severe darkness. And then finally, the final judgment of God, he says, God is going to visit Egypt and he's going to kill every firstborn male in the house of Egypt. My son Eli and I, were, reading the story uh, probably a couple months ago in his Jesus Bible storybook. And the thought occurred to him, I'm the firstborn male of our household. <laughs> and I said, let's read Clifford the Big Riot Dog, Eli. Let's change subjects here. After all, I do want my kid to sleep at night. But it's sobering. The God is doing all of this to show The awesome power of his judgment on human sin and rebellion. So if you want to object and say, God, that's not just. Friends, look to Pharaoh. Do you want God to be just? God is a powerful, mighty, perfectly righteous judge who will judge according to what people deserve. And he raised up Pharaoh for that purpose. But Paul even continues, verse 17... He says, for this very purpose, I've raised you up that I might show my power and you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. See, what Paul is saying here is that God sovereignly raised up Pharaoh so that all the earth would know I am just. So that nobody on earth could look at God and say, he's not really going to judge sin. He's not really going to overlook that. God raised up Pharaoh for this very purpose, that his name, his reputation as a just judge who punishes sin will be proclaimed in all the earth. And we need to hear this. In fact, uh, this was the last Christian theologian to be featured on Time Magazine. It was 1962. The last Christian theologian to be featured on Time Magazine. He one time was quoted saying this, All humanity are in Christ. That means everybody's in Christ. Every, every person is under the forgiveness of Jesus. All humanity are in Christ and we have no right to limit the love of God in Christ. Therefore, in the end, all will be saved. And you can read popular books and articles and blogs that'll say the same thing. They'll express the same, bel- the same belief that in the end, God won't judge. God won't punish sin eternally. There's no such thing as hell. And friends, that's an attractive idea. And it shouldn't surprise us that it's attractive. Because after all, it's the first temptation and the first lie that Satan ever brought into the world. After all, you remember the story, right? God creates a beautiful creation. He creates this beautiful garden, richly flourishing, telling all of his creation, telling Adam and Eve that they can eat from any tree in the the garden. But he he says, hey, that tree in in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, don't eat that. Because I love you. Don't eat that. For on the day you eat of that, you will surely die. So who comes along? Satan comes along and the serpent said to the woman, you won't surely die. For God knows that when you eat, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. God won't judge. No, 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 no. He's not going to punish you. God's too nice for that. And again, by just a way of correction, friends, and I say this gently, I really do. If you don't think God will judge sin, if you don't believe in hell, where did you get that idea? After all, we punish our children, don't we? I just punished my daughter Jane the other day because we said, don't eat the goldfish, big bag of goldfish, Costco-sized goldfish, right? And she goes and she grabs the goldfish again for the 19th time. And this time it spills out all over the floor. And then she starts walking on all of it. And what do I have to do? I punish my daughter. She's cute. Oh, my goodness, she's cute. But I punish my children. Friends, local courts punish traffic violation. Federal courts punish tax evaders. And do we think God, the just judge of the universe, won't punish our sin? Where did we get that idea? Paul goes one step further, and he says not only does God intentionally not save Pharaoh in order to show his justice and glory, but he also says that he hardens the heart of Pharaoh, making it impossible for Pharaoh to submit to God. He points that out in his conclusion, verse 18. Therefore, so then, God has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And now we have to be careful here. You have to understand this because this can lead to a lot of misconceptions about what God's doing here. See, we like to think, well, are, are you saying, God, you, you raise up an innocent guy, Pharaoh? Pharaoh, this, this pure creature like Pharaoh. And Pharaoh in our imagination is kind of like Woody in Toy Story, just this likable fellow, Right? And what God does is he takes evil in in, in kind of a, a syringe and he injects it into Pharaoh's heart and that hardens his heart. And God's wicked in doing so. But friends, that is not what the Bible says about Pharaoh or about any heart or about any human. No, the Bible says our hearts already contain enough sin that if it were to pour out of us like a flood... Then it would destroy everything in our lives, our reputation, all the people around us, and it would destroy us eventually, eternally. And so, when the Bible says that God hardens Pharaoh's heart, what it's saying is that all of God's restraint on the sin of Pharaoh's heart was like a floodgate opening one by one. God says, Pharaoh, do you want to continue to be obstinate? Do you want to continue to not repent? Floodgate number one opens. You want to continue to not repent? You want to continue in your obstinance? You want to continue in your sin? Floodgate number two. This is actually what Paul taught at the beginning of Romans chapter one. Remember, he said, one of the things that God does in judging us is he hands us over to our sin so that it will unravel us and destroy us and ultimately consume us eternally. The book of Revelation, after God has visited judgment. He said that this is God's last word of rebuke. He says, Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. God says the floodgate will ultimately finally be opened eternally. Now, final objection. Someone might say, Well, I I just don't want to worship a God who's like that. And I get it, it sounds severe. How could God do that? Raise a person up for his own purpose just to judge him, to harden his heart. And again, friends, let me just correct us in two ways. Two gentle corrections. First, reflect here just in a little bit of self-criticism. Are we so opposed to the idea of sovereignty? Are we so opposed to the idea of election and predestination, of God's judgment, of his working all things according to his glory and his purpose? Are we so desperately holding on to our free will because that's what seems fair, that we're actually going to defend Pharaoh against God? Are we really going to take the side of Pharaoh here? Are we really going to, with Pharaoh, say, God, that's not right. I'm, I'm the kind of guy that roots for bad guys in movies. I do, because it's kind of fun sometimes. Just see, oh, maybe the plot will... I even root for Tom Brady in the Super Bowl. Okay? <laughs> I know, I don't mean to disappoint. But here's the thing, friends. If we're starting to defend Pharaoh because we're so opposed to this idea of predestination, then we're defending the indefensible. Second, second correction. This is the God we need. We need this God. We need a God who is bigger than we can think, and we need a God who is more powerful than we can imagine. I remember I was talking uh, with one of my youth students in Nashville. Her name was Ruby. And Ruby, we were talking about these very ideas that God is sovereign, that he controls everything. Ruby, her mind goes immediately to where ours does. We think of people that we know and we think, well, if God controls everything, even our eternal destiny, what about my friends? What about my family that doesn't believe And I would say to us, the same thing I said to Ruby, well, do you want God to be in control? Or do you want God to not be in control? Which at the end of the day gives you most comfort? I was listening to a podcast recently and somebody was talking about the first time they heard about election. And he said, it was the first time I ever really encountered a God who was overwhelming, a God who was irresistible, a God that I predominantly heard of growing up was a God pitched by used car salesmen, pitching me a deal for something just a little bit better. Jesus is knocking at the door. If you let him in, you'll get a good deal. But that God was less. Make a decision. I needed a God who would say bow in submission. A Jesus, a God who had authority, a Jesus who could blow me away like Paul on the road to Damascus. I get it. I get it. You may not like what this says about God, a God that's sovereign so much so that He holds the destiny of every human heart in His hands. But dear Creek, this is the God we need. We need a God, a Jesus who's big, a Jesus who has authority, a Jesus who doesn't offer us a better deal, but a Jesus who saves. a Jesus who judges, a Jesus who works all things for His glory, and I'd venture to say. I'd venture to say, if you are battling a cancer diagnosis, if you're overseeing somebody who has a terminal illness, if you need help from a God who can save your marriage, if you need a God who can deal with your sin, who can control your eternity because you know you'd make a mess of it, you want this big Jesus. You want a big God, a God who saves, a God who loves and a God who judges. You need God. God. Because we see in the Bible, whatever is for the greatest glory of God is always for the good of his children. So is there injustice on God's part? By no means, friends. By no means. As the powerful, mighty, perfectly just, merciful, and compassionate God, he has mercy on whom he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. But he is not unjust. And as I close, I'm just kind of reminded of this quote from C.S. Lewis. I think it's so pertinent to this and actually Hannah reminded me of it this week as, as we were kind of discussing the sermon and C.S. Lewis says this, perhaps we feel inclined to disagree with God, but there's a difficulty about disagreeing with God. He's the source from which all your reasoning power comes. You cannot be more right and he wrong any more than its stream could rise higher than its source. When you're arguing against him, you're arguing against the very power that makes you able to argue at it all. It's like cutting off the branch you're sitting on. See, we disagree with God. We object to this idea of election and predestination. We say, God, you're unfair. That's unjust. But again, as I close, just a little bit of self-reflection. Friends, if anybody can say, I've been treated unjustly, it is not us. It's God. After all, God creates a beautiful world. A world of flourishing for our benefit to have a relationship with us. We rebel against him. We do it every day. God says, love us, love him with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. We we go scarcely five minutes a day and think about God. And what's God's response? God's response is, I'm going to send my son, Jesus Christ. He's going to live a perfect life. He's going to live a just life. He's never going to think about a bad thought. He's never going to say something wrong. He's never going to commit any injustice. He'll be the perfectly righteous one. And what's human, humanity's response to him? The cross. Who's righteous? Jesus. Who commits the most grievous act of injustice and unrighteousness this world has ever known? Us. Us. So who can point the finger and say, I'm being treated unjustly here? And notice, God doesn't do that. He doesn't point at us and shame us and say, look what you did. Look at your injustice. That's not what he does. No, instead, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses he made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus why why did he do that so that in the coming ages that's eternity he won't show his judgment on us no it's So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This isn't your own doing. It's the gift of God, not the result of works, so that none of us could boast. God, in response to our injustice suffers injustice himself by bearing our injustice and our sin upon his own son, raises him up, and he raises us up with him so that we and all the world would know, yes, God is just, but he is exceedingly, immeasurably, wonderfully gracious. And If you have faith in Jesus this morning, you are seated with Christ in the heavenly places, and you will experience his grace and glory into all eternity. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are exceedingly gracious. You, You chose us, not because of anything in us. It has everything to do with your mercy, nothing to do with us. We don't deserve it. And nonetheless, you took us out of our spiritual death, our rebellion, our sometimes hatred toward you, God. And you raised us up with the Lord Jesus and you have seated us in the heavenly places. You have showered nothing but grace and forgiveness and blessing upon us. Even though you have suffered the gravest injustice that could possibly be imagined at our hands. God, we thank you. I pray that this doctrine, this teaching would lead us to a humble submission, a humble worship and a humble glorification of who you are. We pray this all in the name of our Savior, our Redeemer, our Lord, the Lord Jesus, by the power of your mighty Holy Spirit. Amen.